0: Good morning, Providence. Let's pray. Father, what a joy it is to be here this morning. What a joy it is to know you. We praise you as our Father. We praise you as the God who has brought us together in Jesus Christ. You are worthy of all worship. You are worthy of our adoration. It's the God who has spoken all things into creation. It's the God who has raised us from the dead through the Lord Jesus Christ. We are grateful for the occasion that we have now to open our Bibles together. And We pray, Father, that as has been your custom over these many years, that your Holy Spirit would, would bless us by helping us to understand the passage that we're about to read that we would love what we read, that we would understand it, and that we would apply it rightly for your glory and for our good and for the fame of the name of Jesus. We pray these things in his name. Amen. Well, if you would, please open your Bibles to Leviticus 21. On the last Sunday of March, 15 years ago, Providence Bible Fellowship met for the first time as a church publicly, and if on that first Sunday I had been given a prophetic glimpse of this morning, I may have had a few different reactions. I I would have been, honestly, I would have been a little, little surprised, thankful, but a little surprised that... That we're still around. I would have been not surprised at all to find that I would still be dressing almost exactly the same. (laughs) And I, I would have been thrilled to find that our text for this morning was Leviticus 21 and 22. There'd been several reasons that that would have thrilled me. First of all, it would have indicated to me that 15 years in, we're still committed to expositional preaching through books of the Bible because if if you're going to drop a one-off sermon you're not going to do it from Leviticus 21 and 22. I mean that means you're committed to preaching the whole counsel of of God. So praise the Lord that he's preserved this conviction in us and that there's people interested in this, right? I mean this is not just the Birdwells and the Joneses still, right? So thank God for that. And the second reason that that would have thrilled me is that On the 15th anniversary of a church that we chose to name Providence Bible Fellowship, God would have providentially brought in front of us a passage of Scripture, affording us the opportunity to think about the great necessity of jealously guarding our fellowship with Him. That's what we're going to do this morning as we look at these two chapters. The great necessity of jealously guarding our fellowship with Him. God is the source of all life and and holiness. Christ has purchased our fellowship with Him, and so we should jealously guard that fellowship. And one way that we're going to look at, at a a way that we we jealously guard our fellowship with Him is by maintaining a clear conscience. So that's where we're going this morning. And in order to get there, I'm going to invite you to to stand with me. We're going to read... All of these two chapters, all at once. As we, do, as we do that, I would encourage you to look for a couple of repeated phrases that happen over and over in these chapters. They're going to be helpful to us as we, as we make our way through the text this morning. Leviticus chapter 21, beginning in verse 1. And the Lord said to Moses, speak to the priests, the sons of Aaron, and say to them, No one shall make himself unclean for the dead among his people except for his closest relatives, his mother, his father, his son, his daughter, his brother, or his virgin sister who is near to him because she has no husband. For her he may make himself unclean. He shall not make himself unclean as a husband among his people and so profane himself. They shall not make bald patches on their heads nor shave off the edges of their beards nor make any cuts on their body. They shall be holy to their God and not profane the name of their God, for they offer the Lord's food offerings, the bread of their God. Therefore, they shall be holy. They shall not marry a prostitute or a woman who has been defiled, neither shall they marry a woman divorced from her husband, for the priest is holy to his God. You shall sanctify him, for he offers the bread of your God. He shall be holy to you, for I, the Lord who sanctify you, am holy." And the daughter of any priest, if she profanes herself by whoring, profanes her father, she shall be burned with fire. The priest who is chief among his brothers, on whose head is the anointing oil, and who has been consecrated to wear the garments, shall not let the hair of his head hang loose nor tear his clothes. He shall not go into any dead bodies, nor make himself unclean, even for his father or his mother. He shall not go out of the sanctuary, lest he profane the sanctuary of his God. For the consecration of the anointing oil of his God is on him. I am the Lord. And he shall, not take, a wife, he shall take a wife in her virginity, a widow or a divorced woman or a woman who has been defiled or a prostitute. These he, he shall not marry. But he shall take as a wife a virgin of his own people, that he may not profane his offspring among his people, for I am the Lord who sanctifies him. And the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Speak to Aaron, saying, None of your offspring throughout their generations who has a blemish may approach to offer the bread of his God. For no one who has a blemish shall draw near a man blind or lame or one who has a mutilated face or a limb too long or a man who has an injured foot or an injured hand or a hunchback or a dwarf or a man with a defect in his sight or an itching disease or scabs or crushed testicles. No man of the offspring of Aaron, the priest who has a blemish, shall come near to offer the Lord's food offerings. Since he has a blemish, he shall not come near to offer the bread of his God He may eat the bread of his God, both of the most holy and of the holy things, but he shall not go through the veil or approach the altar because he has a blemish, that he may not profane my sanctuaries, for I am the Lord who sanctifies them. So Moses spoke to Aaron and to his sons and to all the people of Israel. And the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Speak to Aaron and his sons, so that they abstain from the holy things of the people of Israel, which they dedicate to me, so that they do not profane my holy name. I am the Lord. Say to them, If any one of all your offspring throughout your generations approaches the holy things that the people of Israel dedicate to the Lord, while he has an uncleanness, that person shall be cut off from my presence. I am the Lord. None of the offspring of Aaron who has a leprous disease or a discharge may eat of the holy things until he is clean. Whoever touches anything that is unclean through contact with the dead or a man who has an emission of semen or whoever touches a swarming thing by which he may be made unclean or a person from whom he may take uncleanness, whatever is his uncleanness, the person who touches such a thing shall be unclean until the evening and shall not eat of the holy things unless he has bathed his body in water. When the sun goes down, he shall be clean, and afterward he may eat of the holy things because they are his food. He shall not eat what dies of itself or is torn by beasts, and so make himself unclean by it. I am the Lord. They shall therefore keep my charge, lest they bear sin for it and die thereby when they profane it. I am the Lord who sanctifies them. A layperson shall not eat of a holy thing. No foreign guest of the priest or hired servant shall eat of a holy thing. But if a priest buys a slave as his prop- property for money, the slave may eat of it, and anyone born in his house may eat of his food. If a priest's daughter marries a layman, she shall not eat of the con- contribution of the holy things. But if a priest's daughter is widowed or divorced and has no child and returns to her father's house and is in her youth, she may eat of her father's food, yet no layperson shall eat of it. And if anyone eats of a holy thing unintentionally, he shall add a fifth of its value to it and give the holy thing to the priest. They shall not profane the holy things of the people of Israel, which they can contribute to the Lord, and so cause them to bear iniquity and guilt by eating their holy things, for I am the Lord who sanctifies them. And the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Speak to Aaron and his sons and all the people of Israel and say to them, when any one of the house of Israel or the sojourners in Israel presents a burnt offering as his offering for any of their vows are will offerings that they offer to the Lord. If it is to be accepted for you, it shall be a male without blemish of the bulls or the sheep or the goats. You shall not offer anything that has a blemish for it will not be acceptable to you, for you. And when anyone offers a sacrifice of peace offerings to the Lord to fulfill a vow or as a free will offering from the herd or from the flock, to be accepted, it must be perfect. There shall be no blemish in it. Animals blind or disabled or mutilated or having a discharge or an itch or scabs, you shall not offer to the Lord or give them to the Lord as a food offering on the altar. You may present a bull or a lamb that has a part too long or too short for a free will offering. But for a vow offering, it cannot be accepted. Any animal that has its testicles bruised or crushed or torn or cut off, you shall not offer to the Lord. You shall not do it within your land, neither shall you offer as bread of your God any such animals gotten from a foreigner. Since there is a blemish in them because of their mutilation, they will not be accepted for you. And the Lord spoke to Moses saying, when an ox or sheep or goat is born, it shall remain seven days with its mother. And from the eighth day on, it shall be acceptable as a food offering to the Lord. But you shall kill an ox or a sheep or her young in one day. You shall not kill an ox or a sheep and her young in one day. And when you sacrifice the sacrifice of thanksgiving to the Lord, you shall sacrifice it so that it may be accepted. It shall be eaten on the same day. You shall leave none of it until morning. I am the Lord. So you shall keep my commandments and do them. I am the Lord and you shall not profane my holy name that I may be sanctified among the people of Israel. I am the Lord who sanctifies you, who brought you out of the land of Egypt to be your God. I am the Lord. You may be seated. And we're going to Approach things this morning in, in three movements, essentially. So, the first movement is we're going to consider the emphasis of this passage in its larger context. The second movement is we'll consider how the emphasis points to God's provision in Christ. The third movement, given the emphasis and how Christ has provided for us, we're going to think about what is the application for us in life, okay? So the first emphasis of the pa- is the I'm sorry the first movement is the emphasis of the passage, and that is this: the way of fellowship with God must be maintained because He is the source of holiness and life. The way of fellowship with God must be maintained because He is the source of holiness and life. Now, how do we get there? Well, remember that chapters one through sixteen were largely about. The approach to God. How do sinful people enter God's presence? And chapters 17 and following have largely been about how to live faithfully then in fellowship with God. So once you've entered God's presence, how do you live faithfully with Him? So since chapter 17, we've seen a lot about holy living and reflecting faithfulness to the covenant that the people have entered with God. The latter chapters that we're going to see from here on out are largely about depictions of the people's fellowship with God. So what is the result of being in God's presence? The result of being in God's presence is life and holiness. He is, he is the very source of life and holiness. That's going to be especially clear when we get to chapter 24, and we, we've talked about how the camp of Israel itself is set up in such a way so as to depict this. The closer you get to the center of the camp, where the tabernacle is, where the Holy of Holies is, the closer you are to God, the closer you are to life and holiness. The further out you go from the center of camp and and, and, and ultimately outside the camp, the further away you are from life and holiness and the closer you are to to uncleanness and death. So this last half of the book is about life in God's presence. So we might ask then, why in this last half of the book, if it's all about life in God's presence, why these two chapters about priests and sacrifices? It would seem that those would go better in the first half of the book. Well, we're returning to these two, these, these two chapters about the priests and the sacrifices because of the crucial role that the priests and the sacrifices play in maintaining that way of fellowship with God. Fellowship with God is crucial in our enjoying life and holiness in the presence of God. So we're, we're going to go relatively high level as we go back through these couple of chapters and see how the sections work together to show what I've, just, what I've just talked about. So if you look at 21 verses 1 through 15, that's the first section of the couple of chapters, and there God gives Moses particular standards for the priesthood. And some of those specific things, so that those specific standards for the, the priests pertained to the fact that they needed to, to mourn in a particular way, and there were particular people that they were allowed to mourn, indicating there were particular people that they were not allowed to mourn. There were particular people that they could marry. And all of those things indicated that there were a higher standard for the priests than the normal people of, of Israel. Why might that be? Well, verse 6 told us. Verse 6 explained that the priests do holy work. They bring the offerings of the people to God Therefore, they must remain holy. Otherwise, they would defile or profane the very name of God. And then we would end up with a Nadab and Abihu situation. Remember chapter 10, Nadab and Abihu, they defiled the sanctuary, ended up messing up this way of approach to God, this way of fellowship to God. So that is to be avoided. And so a way of avoiding that kind of thing is for the priests to maintain this high level of holiness. And this section goes on to show that that there are even higher standards for the high priest. Why would that be? Verse 12b says, so that he shall not profane his God's sanctuary. He must be holy so that he does not profane or make unclean this way of approach to God. Or to state it more positively, so that this way of fellowship for the people is maintained. We move to the second section, which extends from verses 16 to 23. And that section states that the priests who come near to bring these offerings of the people to God, they could have no physical defect in their body. So the priests, even in their physical bodies, they are to picture holiness by their physical wholeness. They are picturing holiness by their physical wholeness. Why would that be? The answer is given again, verse 23. He, the singular priest, or any one of the priests, he must not profane my sanctuary. So we're getting repeated that, that, that idea that the point here is that they would not mess up this way of fellowship with God. The following section, the third section, which extends from 22, 1 through 16, instructs the priests to be very careful with the offerings of the people. And there were two particular ways in which they were to be careful with the offerings of the people. First of all, don't come near these offerings in a state of uncleanness. Why shouldn't they do that? Verse 2, 22, 2 says, So that they shall not profane my holy name. See, we're seeing that refrain over and over. A second way that they're to be very careful is to make sure that only the right people eat these offerings. Only those appropriately belonging the tribe of Levi could eat of the offerings of the people. Why? Again, verse 15, so that they shall not profane the holy things of the sons of Israel. We move into the last section, chapter 22, verses 17 through 23, and there the people receive instructions, all the people, the priests and all the rest of the Israelites They all receive instructions regarding the purity of the sacrifices. And just like the priests can't have physical blemishes, none of the sacrifices can have physical blemishes. Why? Verse 32, so that you shall not profane my holy name. So all of these sections have in common this idea, this concern that we not profane the way of approach to God. Be holy so that the way of fellowship is maintained. Now, why would they not want to profane the way of approach to God? Why would that be a concern? Well, the Lord has inspired an answer to that question over and over in these two chapters. Look at the middle of 21.8. twenty-one eight. For I, the Lord who sanctify you, am holy. Skip down to 21.15. For I am the Lord who sanctifies him. 22:23 For I am the Lord who sanctifies them. I'm sorry that was 21:23. 9, I am the Lord who sanctifies them. 22:16 For I am the Lord who sanctifies them. 22:32 I am the Lord who sanctifies you. Remember from previous previous weeks what the word sanctifies means. It comes from that same root word as the word holy. It, to, to sanctify is to make holy or to set apart. God is the source of holiness and life. So don't, don't defile the way to the sanctuary so that fellowship can be maintained because. God's presence is what sanctifies you. It is what makes you holy. It is what gives you life. And so to lose the way to God is to lose the way to life. So this must be protected, priests. It must be protected, people. And that's why even in chapter 21, where all of the the laws given there pertained to the priests, it says even at the end of chapter 1 that Moses spoke these things to the people. The people needed to know what was required of the priests so that if the, if the priests weren't upholding these standards, the people could do something about it. This has to be maintained. This way of approach to the Lord, it has to be maintained because He is life. And fellowship with Him is life. Now, Ideally, the priests would have done these things. But they don't end up doing these things. I, I was reading Jeremiah this week. And Jeremiah begins his, his prophecy by talking about some of these, these things. The, the prophet's failing and the priest's failing. And Jeremiah 23, 11 reads this way. Both prophet and priest are ungodly. Even in my house... I have found their evil, declares the Lord. In other words, the priests have done exactly what God has said they must not do. They have profaned his house with their ungodliness. They've completely failed to maintain the way of approach and fellowship. Now, let, let's, let's pretend for a moment that, that the priests had done exactly what, what God intended even if the priests had maintained that way of approach, they would, have, they would have succeeded only in preserving a picture of the ideal. I think perhaps sometimes we think of what, what Jesus did for us in the New Testament as just this grand plan B. The, the old covenant was, was, was the ideal, and, and it would have been great if things had worked out. If, if, if they had just done what they were supposed to do, then we would still be living in a good old covenant. The old covenant was intended to break, to bring in a better new covenant. If the priests had done what they were called to do, they would have only succeeded in preserving a picture of the ideal, even in the best of times, even of the, in the best of times under the old covenant. The veil remained in, in the tabernacle. The veil remained separating the people from the very presence of God. So, so e- even in success and then in failure, all of these things point to a need for something better. And, and that leads us to our second movement this morning, which is the provision in Christ. And here's more explicitly what the provision in Christ is. Christ opens and maintains the way of fellowship for the new covenant believer. Christ opens and maintains the way of fellowship for the new covenant believer. There are so many ways in which Christ is the substance of the shadows cast by these two, these two chapters. And we, we, we could spend a lot of time pointing out Christ as the substance of these things. We, we don't have that kind of time. But, but we'll consider just a few of these things, okay? And we'll begin, actually, toward the back half of chapter 22, all right? So first of all, let's think through how Jesus offered an unblemished offering, very similar to what is written about in chapter 22, verses 17 and following. Jesus offered an unblemished offering. But the offering that Jesus offered was, was not a mere unblemished bull or goat or sheep. As we move through the, the, the Bible, in, in, in the Old Testament in particular, we find that progressively revealed to us in the Scriptures is that an animal actually can't be subs- substituted for a man. Can't, can't do that. It becomes clear, and, and, and really clear in Isaiah 53, only a man can be substituted for a man. And the picture in Leviticus 22.17 and following would indicate to us that if it is a man, it must be an unblemished man. Isaiah 53.11 says it, it must be a righteous one. That is, he must be sinless. And that Jesus was tempted in every way. As we are, yet without sin. So so Jesus was an unblemished offering. Uh, Another way that Jesus is the substance of the shadow cast by these chapters is that by that same token of, of purity, Jesus was qualified to bring this offering of himself. According to Leviticus 21 and fo- 22, 1 and following, these offerings, they had to be unblemished. I'm sorry, the offerer had to be unblemished. Only the clean could bring such an offering before God. Well, Jesus was perfectly sin- sinless, and so he's qualified to bring the offering of himself for the sins of his people. Now, as, as we move back into chapter 21, we find this. Jesus is the perfect high priest. Now, if we, if we were to go to the New Testament, we'd find Hebrews chapter 4 telling us that Jesus is our high priest. But if we, if we take a close look at how Jesus served as a high priest, and then we take a close look at, at Leviticus 21, we might actually say that, that Jesus turned upside down what, what Leviticus 21 expected of a, of a high priest, of a priest in general. You might find that puzzling, but, but, but just consider uh, a few examples. Leviticus 21 said that a priest could not defile themselves for the dead among their people except for their closest relatives. That's, that's Leviticus 21, 1 and following. They could not defile themselves for the dead among their people except for their closest relatives. A high priest couldn't defile himself for any dead relative. Doesn't matter who dies. He cannot defile himself for the dead among his people. But isn't that exactly what Jesus did do? It's exactly what Jesus did do. He made himself unclean for the dead among his people. We were dead in our trespasses and sins, according to Ephesians 2.1. And though he committed no sin, nor was deceit found in his mouth... He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. That's 1 Peter 2:18 and 22. We find a similar thing written by Paul in 2 Corinthians 5:21 where he writes that for our sake he God the Father made him God the Son to be sin who knew no sin that in him we might become the righteousness of God. And all that is just another way of saying that Jesus became unclean for the dead among his people. That seems to be the opposite of what is prescribed in Leviticus 21. Another example of how it seems that Jesus turns upside down what Leviticus requires of a priest. Consider the wives of the priests mentioned in Leviticus 21. The wives of priests, they couldn't be prostitutes or defiled women. And the wife of the high priest could only be a virgin, never before married. But, but what of the wife of Jesus? Let me, let me read to you a couple of descriptions of the bride of Christ when he found her. This is from Ephesians chapter 2, verses 1 through 3. Paul writing to the church, the bride of Christ. He's describing the bride of Christ before Christ found her. He writes this, You were dead in your trespasses and sins in which you once walked, Following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. Paul gives another description of the bride of Christ, when Christ found her. In in Titus chapter 3, he writes this, foolish Disobedient, led astray, slaves to various passions and pleasures, passing our days in malice and envy, hated by others and hating one another. Jesus did not marry the pure virgin. Jesus married the abject whore. Seems to be the opposite of of what's prescribed by Leviticus 21. One, One more example. The high priest could not leave the tabernacle while the anointing oil was on him. He could not leave that place of perfect life and interact in any sense with death. And yet that's exactly what Jesus did. Jesus was crucified, not not just outside the tabernacle. Jesus was crucified outside the camp, says the author of Hebrews. And, and not only did Jesus interact with the dead, but he himself died. He entered the realm of the dead. Seems to be exactly the opposite of what is required of the high priest in Leviticus 21. And so how does this fit? Well, I would appeal to the book of Hebrews where we're told that Jesus is a high priest of a different order. He's a high priest of a different order. He's bringing a different covenant. And remember that Jesus isn't a mere man, but rather Jesus is God. And remember that God is the source of life and holiness. Jesus is the source of life and holiness. And because of his absolute purity, he is the only one worthy to enjoy the presence of the Father. And, and, and so, the only way that anyone could ever, the only way that anyone else could ever enjoy the same is for him to leave that space, die in their place, cover them in his righteousness, and bring them back in with him. It's the only way that it could work. Now, we've glossed over it a little bit before, but let's look back at Leviticus 21, at who among the Levitical line couldn't come near the altar, couldn't come near the tabernacle. Leviticus 21, verse 18, it reads this way, For for no one who has a blemish shall draw near, a blind man or lame, or, or one who has a mutilated face, or a limb too long, or a man who has an injured foot or an injured hand, Or a hunchback or a dwarf or a man with a defect in his sight or an itching disease or scabs or or crushed testicles. Now, some of those terms may sound familiar, especially if you've been reading the Gospels recently. Because blind people come to Jesus. And lame people come to Jesus. Mutilated people people with messed up hands and feet, people with diseased skin come to Jesus. But what we find invariably is that they don't stay that way because Jesus, who is high priest by virtue of his indestructible life, he qualifies the unqualified that they might come near. He brings them with him. And likewise, regarding this unholy bride that he's chosen. I mean, what of her? She doesn't stay that way. She doesn't stay the whore. Listen to Ephesians 5, 25 and following. Paul writes this. Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. That he might sanctify her. You hear that language from... From Leviticus 21 and 2. I am the Lord who sanctifies you. That he might sanctify her. Having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word. So that he might present the church to himself in splendor. Without spot or wrinkle or any such thing. That she might be holy and without blemish. Those unqualified Come near because Christ makes them clean. How does he do that? Again, he does that by the perfect sacrifice of himself on their behalf on the cross. The Father raised him from the dead on the third day, in effect saying, Amen and Amen to that sacrifice. All sufficient is the blood of Christ to cover sin, and all sufficient is the righteousness of Christ to cover believers. The way of fellowship is open. Welcome into my presence all who repent and trust in my Son, the perfect high priest who brings the perfect offering. And the result then is that we have peace and fellowship with God through Jesus Christ. Now, in the spirit of these these couple of chapters in Leviticus, which is all about that necessity to maintain this way of fellowship with God since He is the source of life and holiness, there are a couple of ways that we might go about thinking th- thinking through how, how do we pivot toward application. And, and one obvious way may be let's rejoice in Christ for opening that way of fellowship and maintaining that way of fellowship through his intercessory ministry for us. I think that's a great way to apply these things. And yet, while not at all discounting that way of applying these things, but rather building on it, I, I'd like to spend the rest of our time in our final movement this morning, focusing on an additional application, which which is this. The believer must strive for a clear conscience so as to enjoy fellowship with God through Christ. The believer must strive for a clear conscience so as to enjoy fellowship with God through Christ. As we've as we've seen, Christ's ministry gained our fellowship with the Father. He ever lives to intercede for us, according to Romans chapter eight, and according to the, the the book of Hebrews. The the true believer, those those who've turned from their sin and trusted in Jesus, they can't lose their fellowship with God. And yet, there is evidence that unaddressed sin in the life of the true believer inhibits one's ability to to enjoy that fellowship. We've considered this concept before, but it's it's worth revisiting. Unaddressed sin in the life of a believer can inhibit his or her ability to enjoy fellowship with the Lord. Before we talk more about that, let's just talk about how that can be possible. How is it? How can it be the case that if Jesus died to gain this fellowship for us, how, how can it be the case that... that that there may be times that we don't enjoy it because of unaddressed sin. Well, th- think about past Pastor John and I, who, who are brothers in Christ. We are, we are brothers because of the gospel of the Lord Jesus. He's united us together in, in, in one body. But let's say that I grievously sin against Pastor John. Will we still be brothers in Christ? Of course, Nothing will change that. The Gospels united us in Christ. But will we, will we enjoy fellowship with one another in the same way that, that we used to? Not until, not until that sin is addressed. Why? Because Pastor John loves me. He loves me. And he knows the Bible. And he knows that sin in my life is dangerous for me. And so our fellowship... Is likely only going to be about my sin until it's addressed. Now, once that sin is addressed through repentance and, and forgiveness, then yes, we return to the enjoyment of fellowship. We've never ceased being brothers, but yeah, the joy of fellowship will have ceased until that sin is, is dealt with. It's the same way with God. When, when I have unrepentant, unaddressed sin going on, he's still my father. And actually, it's because he's my father, he's actually going to press on me. He's going to press on me in my sin, to move me to deal with it because it's dangerous for me. And once it's dealt with through repentance, faith, and forgiveness, I'm going to be able to enjoy it once again. Now, what evidence is there in the Bible that that's actually a thing? Am I I conjuring this up? Is there evidence that that's actually a thing? There's actually a lot of evidence of it. I'm going to bring to you something that perhaps I haven't before, and that is this. The New Testament authors repetitively put forth the priority of maintaining a clear or clean conscience. And when we talk about maintaining a clear or clean conscience, all we're saying is just making sure that there's no unaddressed sin in your life. Now, reason with me if you would, and if you're taking notes, you might write down a few of these references that I'm about to give you. Let's, let's reason through a few things that the New Testament says about, about the conscience. First of all, Hebrews 9.14. Hebrews 9.14 teaches that the blood of Christ purifies our conscience from dead works to serve the living God. So when we come to the Lord in faith and we're saved, all of our sin and all the guilt associated with it, it's scrubbed from our consciences. It's a wonderful thing. Wonderful thing. Hebrews 9.14. And for that reason, Paul writes in 1 Timothy 1.5, 1 Timothy 1.5, he says, The aim of our charge is love that issues from a pure heart and a good conscience and a sincere faith. So what he's saying is the aim of our charge, what we want to see as the fruit of our ministry as apostles, we want to see all kinds of people with their consciences scrubbed clean by faith in Christ, we want to see them bearing fruit in love, all right? Now, we might ask, why then would that same apostle, Paul, why would he say in Acts twenty four sixteen, I always take pains to have a clear conscience toward both God and man? I always take pains to have a clear conscience toward both God and man. Why would Paul take pains? That is... Why would he work to have a clear conscience if Christ already cleansed it? Well, it's because unaddressed sin sullies that conscience cleansed by the Lord. The conscience is a wonderful gift of God. It's that hazard light on the dashboard of our souls warning us that something is wrong. When, when I have a sin that's unaddressed in my life, the Holy Spirit, He pushes that button on my conscience so that I'll address that sin. Now, it's possible for me to, to, to ignore that warning light, like I frequently ignore the warning light on the dashboard of my actual car. It's possible for me to ignore that, that light, ignore the conscience. And Paul writes about people who do that. He writes about them in 1 Timothy 1.19, saying that some who have, who have rejected the priority of maintaining a good conscience... They have made a shipwreck of their faith, he says. In First Timothy 4.2, he says that those people end up with, with what he calls a seared conscience. And by that, he means that they get to where they, they can't feel anything. So it, it's possible to ignore the conscience to the point that it becomes seared and one's, one's faith is shipwrecked. Now, why would ignoring the, con- the, the conscience shipwreck one's faith? Well, it goes back to these principles that we're, we're, we're pulling from Leviticus 21 and 22. Sin inhibits the, the ability to enjoy fellowship with God. And when we don't enjoy fellowship with God, we're like, we're like a house plant that is not getting any water or sunlight. We shrivel up. God is the source of life. and When we're not enjoying fellowship with him, we're going to shrivel up. Now, conversely, in First Timothy 2, Paul suggests that mature believers are those who do maintain a clear conscience. And 1 Peter 3, likewise, commends the power of a good conscience. And the apostles, what they're getting at is, is, look, maintain this clear conscience. So they're saying, when you become aware of sin in your life, just deal with it. Now, I will give you a couple of words of caution here. A couple of words of caution. First of all, all of this is not intended to send any one of us on a wild goose chase for sin. So I, I, don't, I don't intend for, for, for all of us to go sin spelunking. Do you, know, do you know what I mean by that? To just just go deep dive into your heart, unhappy until you've mined something out of your, out of your soul, some, some dark sin. If you have a guilty conscience, you almost certainly know it. In fact, it it likely is bothering you right now. If you suspect that that possibly your conscience is seared, then just pray that the Holy Spirit will sensitize it and and then let him do his job. He's very good. A second a second word of of caution. I, I would caution you. Don't become suspicious of yourself. Don't become suspicious of yourself simply because you don't Feel close to the Lord right now. You know, there, there, there could be any number of reasons why you don't feel close to the Lord right now, including what you've eaten recently, how well you've slept recently, or just the overall state of, of your health. So, so I, I would caution you not to go strictly by feelings, but, but rather to just pray for revelation of unaddressed sin, if there is any, and press into fellowship with the Lord. And, and when you do become aware of, of some sin that has been unaddressed, then address it by doing two things. First of all, repent. And, and, and here's 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 what what this means. Just express express your repentance to the Lord. Father, I, I realize that I've sinned in this particular way and I'm turning away from that. I don't want to do that anymore. I want to honor you with my life in this particular opposite way. In this godly opposite way. So confess that sin to God, express repentance to him and ask his forgiveness. If that sin, that unaddressed sin is against a person. Then also express that repentance to them and seek their forgiveness. Now, if the sin is only between you and the Lord, then you would you you would only express repentance to the Lord and and seek his forgiveness. However, in, in In cases it may be wise even even if it's a sin that's just between you and the Lord, it may be wise to confess that to somebody who can help you through prayer and and accountability. A second thing to do after you repent, believe and this is this is where we we, we bring back to our mind all of these wonderful gospel principles that that we looked at in our second movement, and what we're doing is that we're trusting. That, that Christ's work in his life, death, and resurrection is sufficient to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. And in that trust, then enjoy your once again clean conscience, understanding that fellowship with God is the most precious thing that we have in this life, it's the most precious thing that we have in the next life, and so the Lord has put in the Old Testament, look, maintain this way of fellowship. The Lord has put in the New Testament, pursue a clean conscience. Christ has, has won for us fellowship overall. So let us understand the way of fellowship with God is a crucial avenue in the life of his people as he is the source of their life and holiness. Christ secured that way of fellowship by his incarnational work. He maintains it even now through his intercessory ministry for us. And if we would enjoy that fellowship in all of its fullness, let's follow Paul's example saying, I always take pains to have a clear conscience toward both God and man. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your great goodness to us. We thank you for the word of God. We thank you that we have these Bibles in our own language. We Thank you for this opportunity to study them together. And we thank you for what we have just seen in the word. We praise you for Christ, our great high priest, who has brought the perfect offering for sin, his own flesh, that he's clothed us in his righteousness, He's reconciled us to you and scrubbed our consciences clean of dead works so that we might serve you, our living God. We pray, Father, that we would prize fellowship with you above all things and so cherish the work of Christ and cherish a clean conscience. And so follow in the footsteps of of the apostles and the early church and, and prizing our clean consciences, Father. So I pray for those among us this morning who who may have unaddressed sin weighing on their consciences, that you would grant them the courage to deal with those things appropriately, the wisdom to know how to go about doing that, and that having done so, Father, they would once again enjoy a purified conscience and enjoy fullness of fellowship with you.